this is Andrew Denary with the Space Foundation, and you're listening to the Space for You podcast. Space for You is designed to tell the stories of the people who make space exploration today more accessible to all. Our guests today are Robert Gregg and Toby Ellery, who are part of a team that has designed an improved robotic prosthetic produced using parts originally designed for use on the International Space Station. Robert Gregg is an associate professor of electrical and computer engineering and robotics at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences from the University of California, Berkeley, and then subsequently Master's and Doctoral Degrees in Electrical and Computer Engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He joined the University of Michigan as an Associate Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering and the Robotics Institute in fall 2019. Prior to that, he was an Assistant Professor in the Departments of Bioengineering and Mechanical Engineering at the University of Texas at Dallas with an adjunct appointment at the UT Southwestern Medical Center. He was also previously a research scientist at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago and a postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern University. Dr. Gregg currently directs the Locomotor Control Systems Laboratory, which conducts research on the control mechanisms of bipedal locomotion with applications to wearable and autonomous robots. Our other guest, Toby Ellery, is a mechanical engineer and researcher based in Dallas, Texas. He earned his PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Texas at Dallas in the spring of 2020. Up until April of this year and for nearly six years prior, he was a PhD graduate research assistant at the University of Texas at Dallas. His areas of specialty include mechanical engineering, research and development engineering, robotics engineering, system design engineering, and electromechanical engineering. When Toby was finishing his undergrad degree in mechanical engineering, his eyes were open to the world of medical devices when he had the opportunity to visit a prosthesis clinic, and this inspired him to apply his engineering background to improve people's quality of life. It also led him to pursue his PhD in mechanical engineering and to conduct research in robotic prostheses and orthoses. He's worked on a host of robotics projects, has served as a mentor for undergraduate projects, and has also disseminated his research in the field through several publications and presentations. Robert and Toby, thank you both for joining us today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. So let's start with how the idea came about to produce better robotic prostheses. Yeah, so that's been the goal of of my research lab uh, since its beginning, actually, that was kind of the foundational um, uh, vision for the lab. And it's driven by a need for better prosthetic legs because conventional prostheses, although they're designed and manufactured very carefully to restore as much function as possible, they're designed to be mechanically passive, which means that they can flex, they can absorb energy, they can um, sometimes slow you down, but they cannot actually help propel you or help you get up out of your chair, help you push forward while you're walking. And so that necessitates uh, new robotic devices that can do that. So when you introduce motors and sensors, um, you're able to um, have the prosthetic limb perform in a similar manner as the biological limb would do um, before the amputation. That's really where our laboratory has come into the picture and has been helping push forward this area of research. Um, there, there are certainly other groups that are working in this area as well, and we just happen to have a new way of designing a robotic leg using specialized motors that, as you mentioned, 
uh, were originally designed for a robotic arm on the Interna- International Space Station. So who said, like, aha, this motor from the ISS is going to fix this problem? How was that connection made? Well, I'll let Toby answer that, but first say that our goal with this design was to make it as dynamic and uh, free-swinging as possible, because one of the side effects of using motors is that you often have to use gearing, and when you use um, a smaller motor, you typically have to use a lot of gearing, and then that gearing actually adds friction and inertia that um, makes the joint very stiff, very, very rigid, and so it doesn't kind of move naturally like your biological joint would. Essentially, it's only moving exactly how the robot is forcing itself to move. And so what I essentially worked with Toby on was we need to create a new type of design that uses a different type of motor to minimize the gearing um, so that we can have both the power that we need, the mechanical power from the forces that the motor generates while also having the benefits of free-swinging motion, much like a conventional leg has. And Toby would be the right person to to answer how he came across these specific motors. Yeah, definitely. So we picked these, it was years ago when we were first starting kind of the concept design of this prosthesis. And um, I was pretty early in my my grad school, and I was working with, who's now Dr. Hanki Zhu, who was a former PhD student of Bobby's as well. And he sent me this motor. Um, he said, you ought to take a look at it. And we started looking at it for the application that Bobby was just discussing. We wanted this really compliant actuator. So we wanted a really high torque motor um, so that we could kind of reduce the, the gearing necessary. And uh, he sent me the, the motor and we were looking at it. And we, it was probably one of the highest had one of the highest torque density, which means it can produce a lot of force in a very small package, which was really useful for our application. So we were able to get a whole lot of torque, a whole lot of force out of it in a really small volume, which is critical when designing motors into prosthetic devices that are that are worn on people. We can't have these enormous devices. It's just unreasonable to wear that on you know something that's too big on a person. So that's kind of where we found these motors and that's kind of why we started using them just just for how impressive they were do you know how they were used aboard the iss those motors i don't know a lot of specifics maybe bobby would but i know that they were used it sounded like in uh, the robotic arms but i have heard that you know they've got all sorts of robotics up there to help the astronauts you know do a variety of experiments or just different tasks that they have to do. You know, having a third arm without having to send another person into space is always useful. So I can give a little, little bit more background. So the the uh, German space agency, uh, DLR, as they're called, they, they originally developed these motors. And um, I don't know which specific robotic arm it was for, but it was for some arm. That I guess they probably have uh, more than one or that they have developed more than one. And when they had finished designing this type of motor, they had a spin-off company called RoboDrive to commercialize it and, and distribute it for other robotics applications. And so we, that's where we came in, in touch with, with um, this type of motor was through, through RoboDrive, um, which at the time that we were designing our leg, they were, they were still very new um, and not really widely used 
in the field. And so it was kind of a happy, lucky coincidence that we came across them at the time. And we didn't even know that there was this connection to space <laughs> at the time that we did uh, come across them. It was only um, later we we found out more about the history of the motors. That's how it came across. Interesting. So is it the motor itself is so much quieter or is it the gearing or is it a combination of both? Yeah, it's definitely a combination of both. Yeah, because the audio of the leg is reduced so much, mostly because of, yeah, I'd probably say a lot of the gearing, uh, but that is enabled through the, the motor that we use. So when you have, what's typical is you have these transmissions that have really high uh, ratios. And because of that, um, there's also usually a lot of friction and damping in the system. A lot of parts that are meshing with each other, whether it's, you know, physical gears, uh, gear teeth, you know, meshing together, or if it's a lot of little ball bearings that are rolling, you know, every time, if you have more of those, there's more friction that has to overcome and just more of those rolling, which create this loud sound, right? And because with this motor, with the reduced transmission, we're able to kind of minimize the amount of parts that were necessary in the transmission. So that really helped us re- reduce the, the audio of the leg as well. So the more compact, more powerful motor allowed you to eliminate gears. Yeah, essentially. Yep. Um, yeah, we still, we still had a, a minimal set of gears. Um, essentially, a, what is it, Toby, a 24 to 1 gear ratio? 22. 22, uh, off by two. Um, yeah, so um, there's still some minimal gearing, but but this that, that's a order of magnitude smaller than the conventional designs um, that we've seen in, in the field of, of robotic prosthetic legs, which typically use 200 to one or or more mm-hmm. um, in their in their um, their gearing. Which and what, what's interesting is that um, that doesn't mean that there's 10 times more inertia. That actually means that there's 100 times more inertia because the inertia reflected through the transmission scales with the square of the gear ratio. So um, there's actually a really substantial effect by minimizing the gearing. It's not it's not a proportional effect. It's actually a squared effect. I've heard that uh, conventional prosthetic wearers have to exert about one and a half times the amount of energy to operate their prosthetic compared to utilizing a natural limb. Is is that accurate? And how much does your prosthetic lessen that burden? It, it can be even as high as two or three times more metabolic cost, um, depending on the level of amputation. Wow. And so essentially the reason for this is that when an, uh, so, someone who's lost their limb is walking with a conventional leg, uh, as I discussed earlier, the conventional leg does not produce the function of the of the missing muscles. Um, it doesn't help inject energy. It doesn't help propel you. And so what ends up what ends up happening is that your intact limbs, like the hip on the amputated side or the sound leg, the intact leg, um, end up compensating to um, insert that energy um, that is missing from the prosthetic side. And that's a that's not a natural thing that our, our biology is designed to do or, or evolved to do. And so the, it's less energetically efficient to, to do that. So essentially, it's less energetically efficient to, to propel your, your walking with um, your hips than it is with your ankle. And so that, that's the reason that it's more energetically costly. 
Um, now, we have not actually tested metabolic consumption. So that, that requires specialized equipments using uh, essentially measuring the, the CO2 that comes out of your lungs so through your mouth to uh, measure caloric uh, you know, consumption. But uh, so we haven't done that testing yet. But what we have seen is that we can reduce the amount of mechanical work essentially the amount of energy that the hips are injecting into the gait cycle compared to when using a conventional passive leg. So the power leg minimizes the need for those compensations. It doesn't completely eliminate them, but it's minimizing that the use of that compensation thanks to restoring more normative biomechanics in the, um, in the prosthetic leg using the powered joints. That's great. And I can add just a little to that. Um, Yeah, like Bobby said that we didn't measure the metabolic energy used, but we did measure the mechanical, which is based off of uh, the joint torque and velocities. And we were able to see roughly on average about a 13% decrease of work at the residual hip, uh, which is where a lot of the compensations that Bobby mentioned come into play. So, yeah, we and that's not necessarily... 13% 13% below what is normal and healthy individuals. That's 13% below what they're doing on their typical daily prosthesis. So we're, we're going in the right direction. And hopefully one day we'll get, you know, to where, you know, it's just seamless integration and, you know, they're uh, not having to compensate or uh, expend any additional energy at all. <laughs> Sounds significant. Um, you know, there's, there's also a, a secondary benefit of this is that um, then they're not overusing those um, residual joints. So uh, over time, if they're overusing their hips, they can develop osteoarthritis. Same with the, uh, the sound leg. Um, if they overuse their knee joint, um, they can develop uh, osteoarthritis there too. And so, um, actually, it's not just making walking more energetically efficient for the, for the individual. It's also saving their joints so they don't deteriorate over time. Um, now, again, this technology is too new to be able to say definitively that this will prevent that. Um, at this point, it's, we have anecdotal evidence to suggest it. We just know that we're going in the right direction based on the root cause of the overuse. And how extensive has the testing been thus far? Is Are you finding it's universally beneficial for like different kinds of wearers or? So our testing so far has been pretty limited. We've only tested on three uh, amputee individuals. And so like Bobby said, the a lot of the stuff that we're seeing can't be really stated as fact across all the like, amputee community. But, and, and there are some things that we're seeing is, you know, more on the individual level on how it affects the person specifically. But one of the things, like we mentioned before, uh, we do see, like Bobby mentioned, that these devices can inject energy to help push you forward. We're seeing that, which should happen. We're seeing a, a reduction in hip work kind of across the board. We're seeing some increased symmetries across the board, too. So it definitely depends on the individual, um, and we can't make any huge statements on how it will affect the community as a whole. But again, I think we're, we're going in the right direction. How are they attached to the residual limb? Is it a harness or pinlock or suction? Yeah, so this is a knee-ankle prosthetic leg that we've developed. 
So this is for persons who have an amputation above the knee. Um, and what they typically have is a, a socket that fits onto their residual limb. Um, and like you mentioned, it, it uh, stays attached through suction. Uh, so they have, these are typically made with their clinicians and uh, that's what they use with their daily prosthesis. And then the way we've designed our leg is they can easily take off their daily prosthesis and then uh, very easily put on ours. So it's just a really quick, uh, you unscrew a couple bolts and then you bolt in uh, the new prosthesis. Being that it's an ISS motor or produced for that, will they be affordable and practical to produce, do you think? With large enough scale, <laughs> yes. And I think that we're starting to see additional motors and additional companies producing similar style of motors that are working at increasing the torque density. And when they're doing that and when they can do it at a large enough scale, I do think they can get it to where it's more cost effective to the individual. The ones when we purchased them, we only bought two motors because we needed one for each joint. So at that scale, they were not cost effective for you know mass distribution. <laughs> yeah, they, they were between one and two thousand dollars each, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but one of the nice things like Toby was getting at with uh, other companies that are trying to build and distribute similar style motors at a at a l larger scale. Um, that's that's uh, largely driven by the drone industry. So um, oh. there's a lot of cool technology that's becoming widely available thanks to hobbyists and you know professionals that use that use drones because they also need to generate high torque. Uh, they also need to be very lightweight because the drones need to fly, and they also need to be cheap because you know if the drones are being used for for a hobby, you typically don't want to throw 10k into it right so we are as a field we are greatly benefiting from uh, better motors better sensors better computation that it, lighter cheaper from parallel industries like drones uh, electric cars and so on that's great another uh, industry that i uh, recently kind of looked into are electric bikes mm -hmm. um, they are starting to implement what we call direct drive motors which is just a motor without a transmission which you know, ours is kind of an in-between. We have reduced the need on the transmission, but we haven't eliminated it completely. But with bikes, they have a little more room to work with, so they can kind of eliminate the transmission. But I've seen some uh, electric bikes just have, you know, really big direct drive motor on them. So a similar, different application, but similar that they are improving on the motor technology as well. Yeah, the same needs, the, the lightweight and, and high torque. So another aspect of the design, as far as I understand, is that the force from the residual limb actually charges the battery. Uh, how does that work? Does that take care of the charging process, essentially, uh, or does it require additional charging? Yeah, so I guess with your first question, how does it work? We were talking about the initial kind of design and desire for this style of prosthesis is we wanted to minimize the... Uh, the impedance or the reflected inertia of the joints. And so essentially we want them to be very flexible, right? So kind of like, you know, our, our joints, um, if you were just to like lay limp, someone could come up and easily move, you know, your knee or your foot where that's not the case with a lot of robotics. They're usually very stiff. 
And so with ours, because we've made it more compliant, you can easily come up and you can move those joints just like or very similar to, you know, an actual anatomical joint. So because of that, uh, anytime the device impacts the ground, it moves the joint and kind of back drives the motor, essentially making it a generator. So um, there, it can act in two ways, or one where you send it electricity and it creates force, and the other is when it impacts the ground, or maybe when you're swinging it in the air, it can absorb the energy and acting as a generator to go and recharge the batteries. Now, that helps with things like efficiencies of the entire system, but the energy absorbed uh, is not quite enough to fully recharge the batteries. And so they are, they are rechargeable and they do need to be recharged. Okay. And uh, you kind of touched on this earlier. I know that a concern for wearers of prosthetics is the, the size, the bulkiness of the weight. Uh, how does this compare to what's currently available in those aspects? And like, for example, does it allow the wearer to wear pants? Yes. Yeah, so, so I would say that this design is most definitely heavier than conventional prosthetic legs and slightly bulkier, but not too much bulkier. So the weight, of course, comes from the fact that we have motors and batteries, right? Th- th- those are the heaviest components. Of course, all legs are going to have some sort of uh, metal or carbon fiber for the structure, right? So that, that, that you can't really get rid of. Um, but we, in, in addition to that, we have motor sensors, controllers, <laughs> and batteries. And so it, it does, it does you know, increase the weight. But it's not, it's not heavier than a biological limb would be. But that still doesn't mean that we can declare victory, though, because uh, keep in mind that when you're wearing a prosthetic leg, it's not directly interfaced or attached to your, to your skeleton. It's actually hanging off of soft tissue on your residual limb, and, and that's being held by suction, like, like Toby mentioned earlier. And so you don't want to have a lot of weight tugging on, on your skin. That can cause discomfort sweating, pressure sores, um, and it just doesn't feel um, good. And so our, our goal, it's a quintessential engineering trade-off. Like you, you want to have high performance, but you want it to be as light as possible, and, and you can't get both, right? But we found a kind of a nice balance. Compared to other robotic legs that use different styles of motors, some robotic legs are lighter than ours, but then don't produce as much force as ours can. And they're also not as free swinging, like we mentioned earlier. And so, again, these are all just trade-offs you have to consider and balance. And what we've been arguing and hopefully showing initially through our results is that the extra power and propulsion that the leg gives you and the fact that it's free swinging is actually enough to make up for the extra weight, especially while walking. If you're just standing still and trying to lift up your leg, then you're going to feel that weight, right? There's no, no way around it. But if you're walking and the leg is actually helping push you forward and help push itself off the ground into the swing phase, then you're not actually going to be feeling that weight as much because the leg is actually helping do that. And your hips can just kind of go with the motions, go with the flow, much like uh, when you're walking with your biological limb. So um, yeah, in summary, it's, it's still a challenge. We're still trying to reduce the weight as much as we can. And we've made some progress with that, but um, it, it, we do believe that that this approach is going to be effective in the long run um, as we continue to improve on, on our designs, on the components, and make them lighter. 
So the, the performance and the like momentum or offset that weight. Yeah, that is definitely the, the idea. And we have, again, some preliminary evidence to suggest that. That's great. So with the amount of electronics going on, is there, is there any water resistance? Not right now. <laughs> no. no, we stay away from water. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Are these prostheses recommended for all types of wearers and activity levels? I know there can be some differences with that as far as higher activity levels versus mild activity levels. So this is, um, yeah, it's a great question. Typically, your activity level is what determines what an insurance company is willing to pay for in terms of the type of prosthesis. And so the more intelligent prostheses that are available on the market that have like uh, variable damping, which is really helpful for um, walking at variable speeds and having more, more natural motions, those are typically reserved for the high-end activity individuals. So um, there's different uh, levels called K levels, you know, one through four. And so uh, K3 is someone who walks in the community um, in addition to in home and is able to freely navigate the environment. They're the kind of person that an insurance company would say, yeah, you're going to actually use this, this expensive device to improve your life. Um, so they'll pay for it. K4 is like an athlete, you know, so Paralympian kind of person, right? Um, there are very few um, uh, who, who meet that classification. And then K1 would be someone who wouldn't get a lot of use out of the prosthesis. And so, because they're, they're limited mobility. And so, uh, typically, an insurance company won't pay for a high end prosthesis like what we're designing. But there, there is something to be said, though, about technology being able to improve someone's activity level. So that's something that the field is beginning to grapple with right now is, is, is if you're able to provide better technology for someone who is a limited mobility individual, would it actually help them improve their K level? And there's some evidence of this with commercially available microprocessor knees. So again, these are the variable damping designs. Um, they, they cannot inject energy like our robotic design does, but they can, they can do nifty things that like, like change their damping between stance and swing. So there's been some, some research by the RAND group that demonstrates that actually um, users can be improved from K2 to K3 using the, these emerging technologies. And so, um, it's, yeah, we're kind of in a neat debate right now about, about who is the appropriate end user for these devices. But I, I would say that our device, since it's you know, a little bit bigger and, and a little bit heavier, is probably not the right device for, for someone who is elderly, really weak, and not able to, to, you know, to effectively wear it, you know, that person would probably need something much lighter, much less powerful, right? And like, how about a higher weight group? It's kind of a similar thing. Right, yeah. I mean, our, our device would be, you know, very useful for someone who, um, who you know, needs more force, to, uh, more, more assistance to get up out of a chair, to stand up and to go upstairs and so forth, I mean, that would definitely help them. But um, also keep in mind that some of these designs can be scaled down to a degree. You know, we could, we could potentially select a smaller motor and smaller structure and so on. Um, we have not looked into that yet, but you could potentially imagine having like a, you know, a lightweight version, a medium-sized version, and a heavy, heavy version for depending on people's needs. Uh, speaking of different versions, you know, would for below the knee amputees, would a foot with an ankle motor design be a possibility with this technology or this design? 
Yeah, definitely. The way we've designed uh, this prosthesis, it's kind of modular such that the knee is kind of its own actuator thing, and then the ankle and foot is kind of its own separate thing. So future designs could take the, the knee actuator out. It would need a little bit of redesign just for electronics and packaging, but um, yeah, it's very possible. Great. And um, I do want to point out that there, there is a commercially available uh, oh. robotic ankle prosthesis. Um, it came on the market a few years ago. Hasn't been super widely adopted yet. I think there's a, you know there's a lot of of uh, obstacles to overcome. Like you know insurance isn't willing to pay for all of it. <laughs> it's it's you know it's more expensive, and the outcomes haven't been well established yet uh, in, in studies of of uh, clinical outcomes. And so again, it's very recent technology. It's still emerging. And, and also just keep in mind that not all robots are the same. Um, you know. Like we talked about, some robots are highly geared, are more stiff. Ours is is more compliant, and so our, our ankle prosthesis, um, the the module, uh, would be quite different than the one that's available on the market, and so it could have different outcomes. Um, but we have not yet investigated that. Cool. So I I just have one final question for you guys. You now have a patent pending on this design. What's the current outlook for manufacturer? Are you currently shopping for a producer? Yeah, so the University of Michigan and the University of Texas at Dallas are working together to try to uh, find uh, someone to license the technology. If that doesn't happen, then there's also a possibility of spinning off a startup company. Of course, that has its own challenges associated with it. Um, and it's not something that uh, at least I can do personally, given that I've already got a, you know, more than a full-time job sure. as, as a lab director. But yeah, so essentially we're trying to, to find part, commercial partners who would, who would bring it to market with, through some sort of licensing agreement. Well, um, you know, that was all I had. Uh, it was, is there anything else that, you know, Podium's yours, if there was anything else that I left out that you would like to cover? Well, I, I think I uh, just want to point out for any, any of our younger uh, listeners, that uh, this type of work is interdisciplinary, and there's not one perfect path to working on on ro- robots. So uh, I'd say anything in engineering or computer science is certainly useful. <laughs> uh, but uh, you, you know, we have we have lots of different skill sets in, in our group. Um, we have electrical engineers, uh, mechanical engineers, biomedical engineers, robotics. Some universities have actual robotics programs, like Michigan. Uh, and we all work together. And so, you know, being really good at your what interests you and then working in teams is, is what it's all about. That's awesome. Well, uh, Bobby and Toby, thank you for your time today. We appreciate you both filling us in on your awesome product. And uh, we wish you the best of luck on its future production and success. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. It was really great to join you today. And uh, that concludes this episode of the Space Foundation Space for You podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Play. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and of course our website, spacefoundation.org, where you can also learn about the various ways you can support the Space Foundation. On all of these outlets and more, it's our goal to inspire, educate, connect, and advocate for the space community, because at the Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thanks for listening.